Good morning, everybody. We are going to start in Genesis 3 today. It is week 3 of our Ordo Salutis series, uh, The Order of Salvation. Uh, if you got your handouts on your table, that's your first blank. The, uh, there's How many different components did we count with the kids the other day? 21, 22, something like that? Uh, different 20-something. It may change by, by the time we're done. We'll see. Um, but uh, this is looking at the, the order of salvation from before uh, time began to really after time is over. Uh, everything soup to nuts, all that's included. Uh, we've looked at foreknowledge and predestination two weeks ago and an election last week. Um, I hope you did some homework on Romans chapter 9. Uh, it is a deep, deep well. So if you didn't, please go back and soak a little bit on Romans 9. It's good stuff there. And today we're looking at sin, atonement, and propitiation. So I'm going to go over the words again real quick from start to finish. Uh, foreknowledge is God foresees. Predestination is God bounds. Election is God chooses. San, uh, sin is man misses. Atonement is God covers. Propitiation, God satisfies. Evangelism, man shares. Conviction, God pricks. Calling, God draws. Repentance, man turns. Faith, man believes. Conversion, God changes. Regeneration, God rebirths. Justification, God decrees. Redemption, God buys. Adoption, God fathers. Reconciliation, God restores. Sanctification, God morphs. Mortification, man kills. Evidence, man works. Perseverance, God keeps. Eternal security, God secures. And glorification, God perfects. So today, we finally get to our part. This is the first part of what we do in the process of salvation, and it's an ugly part. And our part is sin. That's what we bring. So the shorter definition of sin is man misses, and the longer definition, and I'll finish this definition in a couple of minutes, but sin is any deviation from God's standard. And in the Old Testament, it's stepping off the path. There's, there's all kinds of analogies that are used in Scripture for sin and what that looks like. But in the Old Testament, uh, God's righteousness or holiness was always talked about in a journey path. It was a, I'm going from this destination to this destination, and there's a defined um, journey, a defined path that I'm supposed to walk. And any time stepping off of that was the great analogy for sin. In the New Testament, we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. But um, <clears throat> the last two weeks, I've looked at and given you every instance of a word when it shows up in the Bible. I have a problem this week because I don't have a 75-page handout. Um, because if I wanted to give you a listing of every time the word sin showed up in the Bible, we'd be here all day, which perhaps should tell us something, right, about the volume and the impact and the significance of this concept, uh, this idea. The other thing for me studying this lesson is that I found six distinct Hebrew words for sin, an Aramaic word for sin in the Old Testament, and five distinct Greek words for sin. Um, most concepts in the Bible have one or two Hebrew words and one or two Greek words, and that's it. This was all over the place. There's definitions for conscious sin, unconscious sin, intentional sin, predetermined uh, or, or premeditated uh, um, for mischief, for trouble, for wickedness, for wandering, for deception, for offenses, for trespasses, for all kinds of different sin. And, and what I got from that, and I didn't list all the words on your page because it's just be 
60 pages long of stuff. Um, what I got from that was that perhaps God is trying to communicate something to us from the variety of ways that he describes sin in the Bible. That we and our um, thing that we bring into salvation is ugly, it is sprawling, it impacts a lot of different things, it can happen in a lot of different ways. And God, when he brings his work into salvation, is very clear, it is very defined, this is what we're doing, we're going from this point to this point, and we just do everything we can do to mess this up. So, uh, perhaps God is using uh, these words to tell us something. Now, if you think about the history of all things, what was the first act of disobedience toward God? Somebody tell me. What book of the Bible does the first act of disobedience toward God occur in? And everybody says the answer is Genesis. And Genesis is incorrect. It's not Job either. Good idea. The answer is what? Isaiah. You go, Isaiah? What, what in the does Isaiah have to do with anything? Isaiah chapter 14, actually. This is a description of Satan when he fell from heaven. Verses 12 through 15. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And that is, chronologically speaking, well before we ever showed up. That's way before God created the earth and the universe and all things that we can see and touch and feel. So Lucifer sets a great example of disobedience for us. Now, there's all kinds of theological implications if you call what he did sin. So I'm not going to call what he did sin. I'm going to call what he did a great example for us in our sin. So we'll leave that alone. But humanity, here's your next blank. Humanity got involved with sin in Genesis chapter... Anybody know? Three. Yes, Genesis chapter three. So if you got your Bibles opened up to Genesis chapter three, that'd be great. Uh, in Genesis chapter... We're not going to read the whole thing, but Adam and Eve made a decision to disobey God's direction and they stepped off the path, right? They stepped off the path. And this event changed human history. And we don't like to think that it did because, dang it, we're Americans. And I'm responsible for my own destiny. And I like to believe that what somebody else's decision way over here, way before now, doesn't impact me. But the reality is we live in a far more connected universe than we like to believe. A far more connected universe. And... The things of the past impact us now, still, today. So what happened in Genesis 3? What happened in Genesis 3? The fall of man, right? Yeah. They ate the fruit. They did the one thing God told them not to do. And then they kind of sort of tried to lie about it, right? And then they got really ashamed of themselves. And it didn't go well, right? If, if you thought your parents were ever harsh in punishment, you got nothing on what God threw down in Genesis 3, right? Because he impacted the rest 
of humanity. Does this make sense? The rest of humanity is impacted. So what does he say to the serpent? What, what does the serpent get in verse 14? So God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. Which a lot of theologians believe that maybe the snakes had legs before this and get their legs taken away and now you get to slither. So there's a reason we're scared of these things because they're evil. That was a joke. Um, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed with capital S. Who are we talking about? Jesus, yes, absolutely. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, you want to have a head wound or a heel wound? I'll take a heel wound. Even if it is Rusamar Pahars, I'll take a heel wound. Verse 16, to the woman he said, yes, I made a UFC joke, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now listen to this. He's continuing on with her punishment. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I have yet to figure out how that your desire shall be for your husband is part of her punishment. Because from my perspective, I really like the fact that my wife has a desire for me. That works out well, right? Um, for me, yeah. So, so, ha, 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 right? Okay. Then to Adam, verse 17, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Not a period, a comma. We're not done, okay? And have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. So the earth itself becomes cursed as a result of this. So this is not just, oh, I've impacted myself, I've impacted humanity. Literally, the fabric of the earth we live on is changed. So cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. How many of you love getting up and working hard every single day? Anybody? That's awesome. You are abnormal. <clears throat> In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your faith, face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Yay! So what do we get? We get uh, angry women when they give birth, right? We get a scorched earth, and we get to die. Yeah, you, your daddy got nothing on this. It's, this is harsh punishment. And it should be an indicator to us of how severe God views sin. It changes everything. So verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made... What does it say? Tunics of skin. Where do you get skin? Animals. So what does this imply? Death. Something had to die. Something had to die. That The basic principle in the Bible is that when I sin, something has to bleed. It's just how this works. When I sin, something has to bleed. And he clothed them. You know, God could have left them wallowing around in their sin, wandering around. He could have just said, you know what, I'm going to hit the reset button and start all over. And he didn't. And we learned something incredibly wonderful about God is that he doesn't throw people away who make mistakes. Yes. I'm in. That's awesome. That's extremely 
exciting. So they stepped off the path and their sin became part of them. So our first involvement in salvation, here's your next blank, is sin. That's what we bring. Sin is the only aspect of salvation that we complete totally on our own. We bring our missteps, our faults, our failures, our misses, and our sin, and God does the rest. It is a spectacularly beautiful transaction. So Adam and Eve in Romans chapter 5, when we transition to the New Testament, you ready? You ready, Eric? You ready, Eric? Cool. (laughs) This is your cue. Yes, okay. Um, Adam and Eve passed on to their children their sin. They passed it on to us. They passed it on to us. And, And we don't like this, right? We don't like the fact that somebody else's decision impacts me. I like to be the master of my own destiny. So we get in the Old Testament, and this concept of sin is there's a path, and I'm walking the path. And when I step off the path, there's a problem. This is sin. So I want to get back on the path. So I walk the path, and I walk the path, and I walk the path, and I get up the next day, and I walk the path, and I walk the path, and I walk the path. I feel like I'm the guy from uh, the Green Mile. Walking the mile, walking the mile, walking the mile, right? Every single day in the Old Testament, you walk the path, you walk the path, and you walk the path. And one of the beautiful things that I love about Jesus is that when he came, he gave us all these grand analogies that work kind of no matter where we are. Things that we can all relate to. Things like archery, which is kind of fun, right? And I have really bad balance, so I have trouble walking the path. So we're walking the path, we're walking the path, we're walking the path. And this dude named Paul shows up, and he says, sin is like something else. Sin is like an archer who is shooting at a target. Sin is like somebody who is preparing. Does this take work to do? To set this up and to be like, a little bit, yeah, he's ready, he's got it. How many of you have ever shot a bow and arrow before? Okay, not the ones you played with as a kid. Like a real bow and arrow. You see there's a difference here than the little $3 thing that I bought for my son at the dollar store or whatever it was. So you, you shot a real bow and arrow before? You, you hunt with them? No? You just for fun? Does anybody hunt with them? All right, so uh, Tim Archer. <clears throat> what are the practical, tangible down-to-earth reality impacts if if you're aiming at a deer and you miss, what happens? The deer gets away. No food on the table, right? No food on the table. So are there, are there, are there consequences when you miss? Yes. Yeah, there's consequences when you miss. The consequence is you go home a failure. Yep. Loser. <laughs> there's consequences when we miss, right? And some consequences are, okay, that's great. We'll go have McDonald's today instead of uh, deer sausage. All right, well, that's one thing. And some consequences are bigger, right? You ever made a mistake and it was a big mistake? Like a big, hairy, audacious mistake, and you went, oh, no. I cannot imagine that I have messed this thing up. Anybody been there? Yeah. Like today, maybe? Yeah, you can just imagine, yeah. Um, 
There's consequences when we miss. So the analogy that's used, you ready? Awesome. The analogy that's used in the scripture is of a soldier who has got a bow and arrow, and he is going to shoot a target. So my soldier, oh, not me, no, 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 I, I want you to do it first. Let's see if you can hit it. Can you hit it? Oh, you see, he pulled out the other one for himself. Did you see that? That was great. <laughs> All right, let's see how we do here. Now, remember our definition of sin. I gave you half of it to start. What was the first half? Oh, with authority. Yes. Now, here's my question, guys. Is this a make or a miss? Is this a make or a miss? He hit the target, right? He hit the target. So that from a, from a, in the general perspective, this is a make, right? Did he hit the center of the target? No. Okay. Is this sin? It depends. You see how the very first example is fuzzy. Do you see how this gets fuzzy for us? Okay. Can I try now? So I have not done this since I was probably, I don't know, six years old, seven years old. You want 20 pounds or 32 pounds? Uh, 20, whatever the easiest is. How do I do it? 20. Right there? Okay. This is fancy schmancy. Oh, there's a, good gracious. Okay. Never had one of these before. That's awesome. Goes like that. More? Which way? Oh! All right. Thank you, sir. So. Here's my question. Here's my question. That was awesome. Can we give Eric a hand for doing this for us? That was awesome. Who's the bigger sinner? I am. But neither one of us is perfect, right? So when you read about God's holiness in the Bible, what do you think God demands? Split that little cross in the middle, right? I mean, dead center. Anything else is a mess. And there wasn't but one person in all of human history that every single time he drew back the bow, split the middle. In the center every time. And that's pretty cool, right? So here's what this does for me. <clears throat> this does for me, takes a tremendous amount of pressure off of me. I don't have to hit the middle every time. If I depend on myself to hit the middle every time, I'm just glad I hit the target, really, honestly. And not for you, because you made me a little bit nervous. Because, yeah, you were closest. I was praying for you over there, so that was awesome. <laughs> it would have been really awkward uh, if you'd have gone out with, like, a gaping, sucking chest wound, uh, explaining that to Daryl. That, that wouldn't have worked well. Um, you got plenty of life insurance. Wow. 
Dude, that took like 10 seconds. So I would, I would have a conversation about that over lunch. Um, so this process of hitting the target, it's a rather complicated process because it's pretty involved. So back to your definition of sin on the front page of your handout. It said, sin is any deviation from God's standard, stepping off the path, or missing the target. Missing the target. So Adam and Eve, they pass their sin on to us. So we have this infection. We have this problem now that permeates all of our bodies. It's the reason you have to go to the doctor. Stuff breaks down, right? We're not perfect. We're going to die one day because Adam and Eve stepped off that path because they missed that mark. So if this is what we bring to the equation, how does God deal with this? Well, he deals with it beautifully and he deals with it completely. And he deals with it in a way that it only has to be dealt with once and for all. And it's gorgeous. So two more words we're going to learn. Atonement and propitiation. So atonement is God covers God covers. And propitiation is God satisfies. And this is a very unpopular concept in Christianity right now. In the last six to 12 months, this has become extremely unpopular, this idea that that God is actually angry, but uh, He is. So the longer definition for atonement is God's covering of man's sin with Jesus' blood. Very simple. So this event also changed all of human history. So Adam and Eve stepped off the path. And Jesus, through his sacrifice, picked us up, put us back on the path. And it's beautiful. Because I can't find the path without Jesus. The other definition there is the at-one-ment. This is how I was taught this word when I was a very small child, was the at-one-ment of Jesus. So bringing things together. It's very closely tied with reconciliation, which we'll study at the moment of salvation, we'll study the reconciliation piece. The fully reconciled at the moment, but the preparation for the reconciliation happens here. So propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath towards sin and sinners through atonement. And some of you are going, sin and sinners? Well, that doesn't sound like what I've been taught. Nope, you're probably taught wrong. So we're going to fix that today. All right? So the words, uh, Strong's 37.22, it's a verb for atonement. The Hebrew word is uh, kafar means to cover or purge or make an atonement, make reconciliation. Cover with pitch. Pitch. Is there a story in the Bible where it talks about covering something with pitch? There is this story. I think we talked about it last week or the week before. This spectacularly, heinously awful uh, visual imagery that we put up in many of our churches about what Noah's Ark looked like, right? With all the happy animals on the side and Noah and his family waving from the top and... The reality is there were millions of dead bodies floating in the water. Okay? Wasn't a pretty day. Wasn't a pretty year. Wasn't a pretty process. It was awful. It was horrible. So, uh, so what does it look like? Well, Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. When I sin, something has to bleed. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And there are more than 70 verses in the Old Testament that use this word, kafar, just like this, talking about atonement. It's this the most common definition. But there's also one, Genesis 6.14, it says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. This is God talking to Noah. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And 
the more you study the story of Noah's Ark and the more you study all the actions that God took before and the actions that Noah took and how he was preserved and protected and covered, it is a beautiful story of the plan of salvation. It is absolutely gorgeous. Because devastation is coming because God is angry at sin and sinners. And God makes a protective place for his people and he has them assist in the process, but their salvation is not due to their work. Their salvation is due to God's grace and love for them through this event. Does this make sense? And this atonement is the covering, the preparing of this uh, ark. So the question on the handout is, uh, it may be on the back side, have you ever heard the statement, God hates the sin but loves the sinner? You've heard this? Yes. All right, I have two words written next to my notes uh, about this uh, sentence, and it's basically not true. I'm borrowing uh, Justice Samuel Alito for this quote, okay? Uh, Romans 1.18, this is pretty straightforward. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God hates sin. It's very, very obvious. This is one of the easiest concepts to teach in all of Scripture, that God's reaction to sin is never, you know what? That's okay. That's no problem. And, and we give our kids a pass sometimes, right? You, 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 they do something and you go, you know what? You kind of made me laugh there. That was hilarious. It was, it was disobedient, but I, I, all right, no problem. Just let's not do that again. God never says no problem. This is not okay. His holiness does not allow that kind of a response. So Psalm 5, 5, and there's several verses on this concept. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You know, but yeah, I thought God was a God of love. He is, absolutely. It's unbelievable how much he loves us. But he hates sin, and the next blank is God hates the sinner. And you go, well, how do you reconcile that? I don't. Jesus did. <laughs> it's not my job to reconcile it. Jesus did. It's my job to accept it and to believe uh, God's holiness can't just look past the sin. Our sin must be dealt with. And that's part of what atonement is. It's this covering of the sin. You say, so this is the greatest cover-up story in the history of the world? Yep, it sure is. It's beautiful. And God orchestrated it, and he pulled it off, and it is gorgeous. And we get to benefit from it. So Strong's 3725, this is the noun for atonement. The Hebrew word is kippur. You heard this word before? Kippur, Yom Kippur, yes. I'm going to read you a passage, Leviticus 23, 32, uh, 23 through 32. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls. That sounds like a great day, doesn't it? Affli go afflict your souls, yay. And an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is, and here's the word, the day of atonement, to make atonement for, to you, for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. There is no end date on this one. It should still be carried out today. Verse 32, it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict your souls. You get a theme here so far? Afflict your souls. And on the ninth day of the month of the evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So this is Yom Kippur. Now, in biblical times, the high priest 
uh, of Israel conducted a sacrificial ceremony on the day of Yom Kippur. And four incredibly special things happened on that one day that didn't happen on any other day of the year. The holiest man on the planet, the high priest of Israel, would take an offering, actually a variety of offerings. It was a rather protracted, long, drawn-out process. And he would take an offering, and he would go into the holiest place on the earth, the Holy of Holies. He'd go behind the veil into the presence of God. Total and utter blackness. There's no light there. There's no candles back in that space. Blackness. The holiest man goes into the holiest place and he says the holiest word. He says the tetragrammaton. The holy, unutterable, ineffable name of God. The only remnant that we have left of this is yod he vav the four Hebrew characters that make up the word Jehovah, the consonants. We don't know what the vowels sounded like. We made the vowels up so we could pronounce the word because you can't pronounce Y-V-H-Y. It doesn't work. Okay? So the holiest man on the planet goes into the holiest place on the planet and speaks the holiest word that can be spoken on the holiest day. This was special. This was why they tied a rope around his waist in case he messed it up so they could drag his dead body out, which is what happened at times. You did not go into this day and treat it lightly. In the circle of the rotation of the priests, this would only ever happen once in your life. Next year, there'd be a new high priest that would do this. The next year, there'd be a new high priest that would do this. The next year, there'd be a new high priest that would do this. So you either got it right or you died. Who wants to sign up to be the high priest? <laughs> I think I'll call in sick that day. Crazy stuff, isn't it? This is the concept of atonement in the Old Testament. So, <clears throat> we move to the concept of atonement in the New Testament. And the concept of atonement in the New Testament is very connected to propitiation. So, Strong's 2434. The Greek is hilasmos an appeasing, a, propit a propitiating. So 1 John 2.2, 2, and he himself, who is he himself? Jesus. Is the propitiation for our sins. God is angry at sin. He is angry at sinners. And Jesus comes along and appeases God's wrath. And you go, how does that work? It works wonderfully for us because now God is no longer angry at us. He took his anger out on Jesus. Jesus then died. He took the brunt of God's wrath for us, for us. I didn't exist 2,000 years ago, guys. Can you imagine sacrificing yourself for somebody that will live 2,000 years from now? Albert, if you're having a bad day, I'm going to have a hard time sacrificing myself for you, and you're one of my best friends in the world, right? This concept to me is just, 2,000 years from now and he died for me? Yeah, he sure did. So 1 John 4.10, the next verse, and this is love, right? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the appeasement, the propitiation for our sins. There's another word, Strong's 24.35. Hilasterion means an appeasing or an expatiation or an expatiating. Um, Hebrews 9.5, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. This is the same word. 
Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So where was the mercy seat? Somebody tell me. There was this box in the Old Testament. What was it called? The Ark of the Covenant. This box was so many cubits long. It was so many cubits wide. It was so many cubits tall. It was made out of a special kind of wood. The whole thing was covered in gold. It had a lid. The lid came off. Connected to the lid were two cherubim. Right? They faced each other. Their wings pointed toward each other. It was a spectacular display of craftsmanship. Unbelievable work of art. The lid would come off. Inside this box were several things. What were the things in the box? There's Aaron's rod that budded. The second version of the Ten Commandments, right? Because the first version didn't work. So, and the manna in a pot. You put the lid on this. This is symbolic of the presence of God. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Uzal, and they moved this box the wrong way, and Uzal reached out his hand and touched it. Smite. Bad day for Uzal, right? Changed a lot of things. Here's the box. The word for the lid on the box is propitiation. It's the mercy seat. This is where the high priest would have sprinkled some of the blood of the offering. So he takes incense in and burns incense. That's one of the offerings in the Holy of Holies. The next is sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. This thing was a bloody mess. This was not pretty. Sin causes something to bleed. When I sin, something has to bleed. It can either be me or it can be Jesus. But something has to bleed. So he sprinkles this blood on the mercy seat and he covers it. And I love this because what's inside the box? The law is inside the box. The symbolic representation of the Old Testament law is inside the box. And he covers all of that with the blood that points toward Jesus' sacrifice thousands of years later. And it changes everything. It changes everything. It is so beautifully interconnected. When I talked about before that we are far more interconnected with each other in the universe than we think we are, this stuff is way more connected. So the mercy seat is an example of propitiation. And then the last verse on your page, Hebrews 2.17, Therefore in all things he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he, Jesus, might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make, right now, propitiation for the sins of the people. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Say, Jim, so how do you, how do you tie these three concepts together? Well, here's my stab at it. Do you understand it? Adam and Eve stepped off the path and missed the mark. The singular act, this singular act, damaged humanity and angered God. And to appease God's righteous anger, Jesus' sacrifice covered our sin and satisfied God. It's a beautiful, beautiful relationship that we get to enter into. And the only thing that we bring into the equation is our sin. <laughs> I, I still don't get it. I will go to my grave not getting it why God wants to enter into this relationship. The only thing he gets is sinners. But he loves us. He loves sinners. He does. He hates sin and he hates sinners, but he loves sinners. Go figure that one out. I don't know. I'll work on that one for a few years. Maybe 
Ordo Salutis version 2.0. I'll have more on that. We'll see. So, in the columns, on the God does side of monergistic and the man does side of synergistic, on the God does side, we have foreknowledge and predestination and election and atonement and propitiation. God is busy. And on the man's side, sin. We're busy too. <laughs> right? So, somehow or another, he makes that work. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, that's week three. We have nine weeks to go. There's a lot more positive that happens. We haven't even been saved yet, guys, okay? Salvation comes in two weeks. <laughs> this is getting ready for it. So, thank you for coming for Sunday School today. Uh, make sure your name is on the handout, and uh, share your prayer requests with each other. Lean in, engage, and uh, appreciate you being here.